everybody. Well, this is different for sure because I'm talking to a completely empty auditorium, but I am talking straight to you. And uh, thank God for the power of modern technology. We can come into your living room and listen, I want to encourage you to not only watch yourself, uh, this particular broadcast, but do a watch party. Tell others they can tune in because right now this is the way we're going to be communicating based on what the city of Fort Worth has mandated to us. So it's okay. You know, life is full of storms. And if you thought that becoming a Christian was going to be a storm-free existence, let me tell you, you're going to experience some storms you wouldn't have otherwise because the devil attacks and he brings storms. And we go through things in life that, that God allows us to go through. And I really believe he does it to test our faith. You know, the disciples were in a boat out in the middle of the sea and they thought everything was okay because they were in that boat because Jesus told them to get in the boat. He said, get in the boat, go to the other side. So they were living in perfect obedience, being in the boat, being where they were when the storm struck. Jesus was asleep in the bow of the boat and it looked like he didn't care. Matter of fact, they began to panic like much of our nation is doing right now. And they asked him a question that probably bothered him a little bit because they said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus kind of stood up, rubbed his eyes and spoke to the wind and spoke to the waves, spoke to the storm. And he said, peace be still. And nature obeyed its creator. And as Jesus was powerful over that storm, I believe with all of my heart, he's got power over this one. And though the waves are rolling and the wind is howling and the rain is falling, lightning is flashing, uh, our Lord is going to have his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. So I encourage you to put your faith in him. We're praying for you. And as Pastor Brendan said, though we are distanced, we're not isolated. Though we can't meet in person, we're still together in our hearts. And I so appreciate uh, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your commitment. And hey, let's try this new forum. And we're going to go right now into the book of Hebrews. And like I do on all Wednesday nights, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to teach you the word of God. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to grab your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're in some kind of deep waters tonight because we're talking about a very mysterious man named Melchizedek. And the whole chapter is spent on this man and comparing Melchizedek to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember, if you were with us last time, we ended with the writer and we're calling the author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. I personally believe it was Paul, but since the consensus seems to be, we don't know for sure. We're just calling him the writer of Hebrews. But the writer of Hebrews is once again, going to bring up Melchizedek. We've already heard him mentioned several times leading up to chapter 7, and he closed out chapter 6 mentioning him again. He said, this certain hope of being saved is a strong and trustworthy anchor of our souls. This is Hebrews six nineteen. He goes on, connecting us with God himself behind the sacred curtains of heaven where Christ has gone ahead to plead for us from his position as our high priest with the honor and rank of, here he comes, Melchizedek. 
So he's inserting Melchizedek again into the narrative, and he's going to pick it up in chapter 7. And he's dealing exclusively now with this man. Melchizedek is sort of like Elijah. You remember Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He just pops onto the scene. We don't know anything about him. We don't know where he came from. We just know it's Elijah the Tishbite. And suddenly there he is. And he's inserted by God into the Bible, into history, to be the prophet that brought a whole nation to its knees. But Melchizedek sort of pops into the scriptural narrative just like Elijah. Suddenly, he's there, and he's intriguing, to say the least. And so let's see what the writer of Hebrews has to say about him, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of the Most High God. Now, here's what he's doing, because the whole book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament, over the Old Covenant, over Moses, over everything they had known up to this point about God and getting right with God and walking with God. He's writing to Jewish people who had been raised on Moses. And he's, again, going to draw the parallel. He's going to say, look, I'm going to compare now Jesus with Melchizedek. Now, he's already told us Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Abraham. He's superior to Moses. And now we're going to be shown again how Jesus and the new covenant he cut with us through his blood is superior to all the old covenant and the priesthood of the old covenant. So here's the way, first off, he compares him to Jesus. He was both a king and a priest. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. And in the Old Testament, you were either a king or you were a priest, but you weren't both. Melchizedek was king of Salem, and also he was a high priest. And here's what he's saying. So is Jesus. Our Savior is a king, and he's a priest. He's our king and our great high priest. That means as king, he rules over a kingdom and offers as a priest spiritual sacrifices on behalf of the subjects of his kingdom. And if you're in the church, if you believe in Jesus, if you're a child of God by putting your faith in Christ, then you are a part of the kingdom that Jesus came to rule over. He's the king of a kingdom, but he's also a great high priest. He not only rules over a kingdom, but he makes intercession for us according to the will of God. And that is where his priesthood comes in. Now, next, the writer tells us how and where Melchizedek first appears in the biblical narrative. Here he is. He's suddenly going to pop on the scene. Uh, Verse 1, second half. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against many kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. So it was after Abraham. You remember the account in Genesis of how the king of Sodom, where Lot and his family had made their home, got into a battle with other kings several other kings on their side battling kings on the other side. And the king of Sodom lost. And Lot and his family, Abraham's nephew, were taken captive. And Abraham gathered the servants in his house. He had incredibly trained them and took them to battle against these kings. And he won the battle. He rescued Lot and his family and brought him back into Sodom. And 
it was as he was returning Lot and his family, and the king of Sodom was kind of hanging around there, and, and, and there is this after-the-battle gathering, suddenly Melchizedek pops into Bible history. And look what happened next. When Abraham sees him, Abraham immediately knew something about him. He knew that this man was unique. And it says one of the first things he did was Abraham took a tenth of all that he had won in the battle and gave it to Melchizedek. In other words, here we have the account of the very first tithe in the Bible. And it was a tenth. Chapter 7, verse 2, Abraham took a tenth of all the spoils he had gotten in this battle and gave it to this man, Melchizedek. Now, we're going to talk about the significance of that more in a moment. The writer goes on to tell us more about Melchizedek. Second half of verse 2, Melchizedek's name means justice. So he is the king of justice, and he's also the king of peace because of the name of his city, Salem, which means peace. So again, here's the writer drawing similarities between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. Our Lord is all about justice. Let me tell you, the day is coming when Jesus Christ is coming back. And every deed that has been evil is going to experience the justice of God. And that's when you're going to hope that you're under the blood of the Lamb because Jesus is coming to dispense justice. He's going to rule the world with a scepter of righteousness. But he's also called the Prince of Peace, just like Melchizedek was called the King of Peace. So there's more similarities. Now, in verse 3, the writer continues comparing the two. He says, Melchizedek had no father or mother, and there's no record of any of his ancestors. He was never born, and he never died. But his life is like that of the Son of God, a priest forever. Now, when you first read that, you go, wait a minute. What am I reading about here? Because that doesn't make sense. And I got to tell you, we're not to take this literally. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that Melchizedek was not human, that he he was like an angel, that he had never been born. He's not saying that. He's saying that since we don't have a record of his birth and we know nothing about his ancestors, nothing about his genealogy, where he came from or anything, he therefore resembles an eternal being. This is how he can be compared to Jesus because Jesus was, in fact, an eternal being. John writes in his gospel, and this is so important. Let's latch on to this truth here. John writes, in the beginning of all things was the Word, Jesus. And the Word, the Logos, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, the Logos, Jesus, was God. Now, in one verse there, the opening of John's gospel, believe me, he says a theological mouthful. It's incredible. When God flung the stars into space, when he first said, let there be light, that's the first thing he created was light. When he said, let there be light, Jesus already was. He was there. As a matter of fact, John's going to go on to tell us nothing was made without him. The entire creation flowed through the fingertips of Jesus. So in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. The Word was with God. Jesus was with God. And here you go. 
Jesus was God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost were all involved in creation. The Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. There's the Holy Ghost. The Son, amen, everything the Father created. There's God the Son. And the Father is the one who said, let there be. There's God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost were all three integrally involved in the creation of the world. This is so important. I got a couple of other versions. The Living Bible says, before anything else existed, there was Christ with God. He has always been alive, and he is himself God. One more version, the New Living Translation puts it this way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here we're being told something. This is what you call getting your Christology right, what you believe about Christ. What is the truth about Christ? He's God the Son. He's the second member of the Godhead. God is three in one. He is one God manifesting as three different persons. God the Son was Jesus and is Jesus. And he has always been. You see, he doesn't dwell in, God doesn't dwell in, nor does Christ, nor does the Holy Spirit. They don't dwell in time and in space. They are above time. They transcend time. They are always at the end of a thing and at the beginning of a thing at the very same time. That's hard for us to wrap our mind around, but it's the way that it is. And it's very important that we understand this about Jesus Christ, that Jesus was not created. Jesus was not made. Jesus always was and always will be because God wasn't created. Somebody, you know, I heard somebody ask once, a, um, a, a, an apologist, that is a Christian apologist who was traveling to college campuses and defending Christianity. And he was asked by a college student, well, when was God made? When was God created? Well, the fact is God was never created. God is the creator of all things. And so was Jesus. He's never been created. Now, the reason this is important is because there's been huge theological disputes uh, that have raged at certain times throughout church history, particularly the first few centuries after Christ died and rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. The church had to get their Christology straight because some were claiming, and they still do today, that he was created, that his birth was the beginning of him. When he was born in Bethlehem, that that was the beginning of Jesus. Did you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses claim this about Jesus? They claim that Jesus Christ was God's first creation. And this is one of the claims that makes them a cult and not a genuine biblical church. Because Jesus, folks, was never created. He's the creator. He has always been. Go back a billion years. Go back a trillion years. Go back a quadrillion years. He's there. You can't go back far enough. He's there. Go into the future, a trillion years, quadrillion years. He's there. He always has been. He always will be. He simply manifested as a human being in the divine incarnation so he could become one of us 
feel our pain, pray for us, live in front of us, teach us how to live, and die on the cross for our sins, and rise again from the dead for our justification. We serve a mighty Savior. We serve an eternal Savior. He's mighty. You ought to give him a hand there in your living room. Amen. Now, he continues in verse 4. He says, see then how great this Melchizedek is. Even Abraham, the first and most honored of all God's chosen people, gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils he took from the kings he had been fighting. Now, he's, he's showing us now why it mattered that Abraham, a great man, the greatest man of God on the earth at the time, the father of our faith, saw this man Melchizedek and tithed to him. Now, it's interesting. The Greek word rendered here spoils. It says he gave him uh, a tenth of the spoils that he got in the, uh, the battle with the other kings. He brought back a bunch of riches from the victory. The Greek word rendered spoils is acrothenion, and it literally means the top of the heap, the top of the heap. In other words, Abraham gave Melchizedek the best of the best of what he had brought back, the best of the spoils. Why? What was so great about this man? Because he recognized a superior grace and position resting on Melchizedek. He was an anointed king and an anointed priest. And are you ready? He was above Abraham in rank. And Abraham knew it. So the writer here is once again drawing a parallel between Melchizedek and Jesus. And this is what we got to hang with when you're going through Hebrews because he's constantly going to show us the superiority of Jesus over the old covenant. So he's writing to Jewish people and telling them that as Melchizedek held a superior position in Abraham's day, Jesus holds a superior position in every way to the religious system that grew up They had grown up in under Moses. Jesus was better. And remember, the main word describing the whole book of Hebrews is better. Better blood, better covenant, better mediator, better, better, better. Better than angels, better than Abraham, better than Moses, better, better, better. So beginning in verse 5, the writer continues, and he's comparing again. One can understand why Abraham would do this if Melchizedek had been a Jewish priest. For later on, God's people were required by law to give gifts to help their priests because the priests were their relatives and the relatives were the Levites. But Melchizedek was not a relative. He was not a Levite. And yet Abraham tithes to him 10% of the best of the best. Now, again, keep in mind, the writer's purpose here is to show the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. He's writing to Jews that have been raised in Old Testament religion with Abraham as their father, Moses as their lawgiver, and the Levites always as their priests. And he's saying, a greater than all of these has come. His name is Jesus, and he is our king and our great high priest, and he's greater than than the old covenant, just as Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood. Even Jesus said of himself, I mean, he was either crazy or he was telling the truth. And I know he was telling the truth. Jesus said of himself, 
He said, look, a greater than Jonah is here. A greater than Solomon is here. And then he blew the Jews' minds when he said, before Abraham was even born, I am. And when he said, I am, he was using one of God's definitions of himself. I am. I always am. I am in the past. I am in the future. I am now. I am. Nobody could make that claim but God, and Jesus made that claim. I am. So the writer continues with a comparison in verse 6. Melchizedek placed a blessing upon mighty Abraham. And as everybody knows, a person who has the power to bless is always greater than the person he blesses. Now, here's the point that he's making. It's a rule that somebody of superior rank or office blesses somebody of lesser rank. For instance, when a father lays his hand on his children, as they did in the Old Covenant uh, so often, as a rule, the father would lay his hand on his children and he would bless them. Remember Jacob blessing the, the 12 sons, blessing them, prophesying over every one of them? When they did that, it was understood that the father was one of superior superior in age, superior in honor, superior in authority. So it's always a superior blessing and inferior, a greater blessing, a lesser. And Melchizedek, the greater, blessed Abraham, the lesser. The point is, as Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and we're about to see in a minute all of his descendants, so Jesus is greater than the priesthood of the Old Testament. When a prophet pronounced a blessing on the people, the same thing was understood. And the same is true also when a minister pronounces a blessing on a congregation. I often do that. When we finish a service, I reach out my hands and I bless the congregation. Now, I'm not a greater and they a lesser, but I'm standing in the position of one who is greater than all of us. His name is Jesus. And standing in his stead, I can bless the congregation. And I love doing it. Amen. So this was understood of even Jesus himself. You remember when parents would bring their children to Jesus and say, please bless them. And Jesus would lay his hands on those children and bless them. I've often wondered what became of the children that actually had the hand of Jesus laid on their forehead and they were blessed by him. Something tells me they had a blessed life. Now he continues in verse 8 with these comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus. The Jewish priests, though mortal, receive tithes. But we are told that Melchizedek lives on. Metaphorically speaking, he lives on. One might even say that Levi himself, now this is the word of God I'm reading. One might even say that Levi himself, out of whom came the entire Levitical priesthood, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham when Abraham paid the tithes to Melchizedek. So it was from Abraham, remember, that the 12 tribes descended, all of them. So when he paid a tithe to Melchizedek, it could be said that by proxy, Levi paid a tithe to a greater one than himself. Now, next, the writer reasons with the Jews about the failure of Moses and the law to save their soul. This is so important. He says in verse 11, if the Jewish priests and their laws, the whole Old Testament system, all the animal sacrifices, 
all of the rituals, all of the feasts, if the Jewish priests and their laws had been able to save us, then why did God need to send Christ as a priest with the rank of Melchizedek instead of somebody uh, sending someone with the rank of Aaron, the same rank all the other priests had? In other words, why did God had to send somebody above the Levitical priesthood and above Melchizedek? Because the law couldn't save them from their sins. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, the old way, the Old Testament way, trying to be saved by keeping the 10 commandments ends in death. In the new way, the new covenant, written in the blood of the lamb, the Holy Spirit gives them life. Now catch that. You see, the Old Testament never saved anybody. The Old Testament taught us if we're not saved by grace, by the gift of God, we're never going to be saved because we can't live according to the Ten Commandments perfectly. And James told us, if you break one commandment, you've broken them all. If you lie, you've broken them all. If you steal something, you've broken them all. If you dishonor God, you've broken them all. If you bear false witness, you've broken them all. So he goes on. When God sends a new kind of priest, his law must be changed to permit it. As we all know, Christ did not belong to the priest tribe of Levi, but he came from the tribe of Judah, which had not been chosen for priesthood. Moses had never given them that work. So in other words, God stepped out of the Old Testament box. The the priesthood had had always been Levites. God stepped out of the Old Testament box out of the way he had always done things in the old covenant, and he went a whole new route. He raised up our great high priest, Jesus Christ, from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. God changed things up when ushering in the new covenant. Instead of his great high priest coming from Levi, he chose Jesus to come out of Judah. Now, verse 15, so we can plainly see that God's method changed. For Christ, the new high priest who came with the rank of Melchizedek, a king and a priest, he did not become a priest by meeting the old requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but on the basis of power flowing from a life that cannot end. This is why the psalmist wrote, you are a priest forever with the rank of Melchizedek. Now he goes on in verse 18. Yes, the old system of priesthood based on family lines was canceled because it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Why didn't the old covenant work? Why couldn't we be saved by the old covenant? Because it was weak and useless for saving people. It never made anybody really right with God. But now we have a far better hope for Christ makes us acceptable to God And now we may draw near to him. Now, here's what he's saying. The Ten Commandments were glorious and they're true. And you know what? Our very best laws are rooted in the Ten Commandments. But they were weak. The commandments were weak because of our flesh. That's what made them weak. Our fallen nature could not fulfill their requirements. So nobody was ever saved by keeping them. It's like if I handed you a barbell with 10 weights on it 
representing the Ten Commandments, and it weighed 500 pounds, and I told you to lift it 10 times. You couldn't do it. Nothing wrong with the weights. It's the weakness is in you because you're too weak to lift them. And when God gave the commandments, God full well knew you're not going to be able to keep them. Here's my standard of righteousness. You've got to live them perfectly to be right with me. And immediately we realize, man, I can't do this. I can't, I can't lift this barbell. I can't live according to this. And as soon as we realized it, what was it doing? Paul the Apostle said in Galatians, the law, the commandments were like a schoolmaster whipping us into grace because we realized I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot live these commandments out perfectly without messing up. And if I mess up once, I've broken them all. And if I break them all even once, I'm in sin. And the sin has got to be dealt with by God. So I'm either going to answer for my sin or the blood of Jesus is going to cover my sin wash it away, and make me righteous with the blood of Christ. So the writer goes on to show the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the old covenant priests. Verse 20, God took an oath that Christ would always be a priest, although he never said that of other priests. Now, notice the word always, because here's where he's going. Always, Jesus will always and finally, ultimately be our priest. There's no need for another one. Although God never said that about Aaron or any of the Levitical priesthood at all. All those men died, but not Jesus. Only to Christ, he said, the Lord has sworn and will never change his mind. You are a priest, here it is again, forever. With the rank of Melchizedek, always a king, always a priest. Because of God's oath, Christ can guarantee forever the success of this new and better arrangement. So watch these words, always, forever, forever, never change. He's telling us that, thank God, the slaying of animals has stopped. There never needs to be the shedding of any blood ever again since Jesus died on the cross. He is forever our great high priest. You ought to say in your living room forever because that's a great word, forever. There's never going to need to be another death for us, never another priest, never another king. We have a great high priest in Jesus and he's there forever. As the chapter winds down, the writer continues to show how much better the priesthood of Jesus Christ really is. So let me just read some of these powerful statements starting in verse 23. Under the old arrangement, that's the old covenant, there had to be many priests. So that when the older ones died off, the system could still be carried on by others who took their place. But notice, they always died because they too were sinners. But Jesus lives, here's that word again, forever and continues to be a priest forever so that no one else is needed. I'm so glad to hear that. No one else is ever needed. We don't need another priest We don't need another Savior. We don't need another Messiah. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He's it. He's the one I'm going to meet at the end of time, and there's never going to be another. He's able, I love verse 25, he's able to save, he's able to save completely all who come to God through him. Why? Since he will live forever. He will always be there to remind God that he has paid for their sins with his blood. You know what Jesus is doing? 
each and every day of our lives, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, when we mess up, Jesus turns to the Father and says, they're covered in my blood. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And part of his intercession, according to this verse right here, is to, is to inform God, remind God, they're covered in my blood. Not their own righteousness, but that one down there, Debbie, Sue, Jeff, John, Brendan, whomever, they put their faith in, in me, and therefore they're covered in my blood. They're covered in my blood, so forgive them. And God says, forgiven. And that's what Jesus is there forever to do. He's never going to be overthrown. There's never going to be a successful coup against him. He is king and priest forever. He continues. He is therefore exactly the kind of high priest we need. For he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin, undefiled by sinners. And to him has been given the place of honor in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful sight? I love those words. Holy, blameless, unstained, undefiled. That's our Jesus. And aren't you glad to know that God has covered you in the same thing. When God looks at us, he sees holy. He sees blameless. He sees unstained. He sees undefiled because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 27, he never needs the daily blood of animal sacrifices as other priests did to cover over first their own sins and then the sins of the people. For he finished all sacrifices once and for all when he sacrificed himself on the cross. Under the old system, even the high priests were weak and they were sinful men and they could not keep from doing wrong. But later God appointed by his oath, his son who is perfect forever. And so closes chapter seven. Now, let me ask you there in your house, maybe you've got some visitors watching with you. Let me ask those visitors and I'll ask you, has the blood of Jesus, the great high priest, covered your sin? What a great time in our nation's history to think about that as this virus moves through the country and people are living in fear and uncertainty. Let me tell you something. There is a peace that comes from putting your faith in Christ. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if that were not true, I would tell you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Do you know that Jesus has his blood covered you? What a great time in your life to make sure of that. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And then we're going to close out this online Wednesday night service. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of the Word of God. What a rich, meaty chapter, chapter 7 is. And uh, be sure to tune in Sunday when we're going to be there for all three services with, once again, a fresh word, great worship, and I look forward to being with you. But now let's pray, and let's ask God to cover our sins. Heavenly Father, I come to you with anybody that might need Jesus. And Lord, we need that blood covering our sins. We need the blood of the Lamb, only the blood of the Lamb, the forever eternal Lamb of God, our great high priest. We need him interceding for us.
We need to be sure that his shed blood covers our transgressions. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. Now, pray this with me. And say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. And rose from the dead on my behalf. I look to you, Jesus, as my great high priest, eternal in the heavens. Your blood covered my sin, particularly when I place my faith in you. Jesus, forgive me of all of my transgressions and come into my heart to be my Savior and Lord. I receive you and I place my faith in you to carry me to heaven and to wash my sins away this very moment. I am your child. Thank you for hearing me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you prayed that prayer. And again, thank you for tuning in to our Wednesday night online broadcast. Again, Sunday we'll be there again, 9, 10, 30, and noon. Until then, our prayers are with you. We're with you. We are thinking of you. We love you. And though we are separated in person, we're not separated in love. God bless you. We will see you next time. Have a blessed week. Amen.